Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. Today we're talking with Nicole Cameron, who's the Professional Services Director at Intersystems in New Zealand and Australia. She currently oversees the implementation of their EHR into remote areas within the Northern Territory of Australia, and that in large part is to support the Indigenous people that live there. One funny thing about Nicole is that she and her husband took a road trip around the country for their honeymoon and ended up never returning home. She was such a pleasure to talk with, and I can't wait for you to hear for yourself. So let's get started. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, everyone. My name is Joy Rios, and today I am riding solo with an esteemed guest. We are speaking with Nicole Cameron from Intersystems. Nicole, thank you for joining me today. I'm hoping that you can share with both me and our audience a little bit about you and your piece of the health IT puzzle. Like, where do you live in the healthcare ecosystem? Thanks, Joy. Yeah, look, I'd be really pleased to share that. I am... I live in Australia firstly. I live in a tropical north part of Australia in Darwin in the Northern Territory and it's quite a remote part of Australia comparatively to Sydney and Melbourne. I'm a nurse by trade. I started out my career as a nurse. I was in critical care nursing in ICU and um, in emergency as well particularly. 
And my journey, which has almost been 30 years, has now brought me to the point where I am running the professional services arm for a company called Intersystems. And we I oversee the implementation of our electronic medical record. So that is an interesting beginning, um, a great beginning and a, an end or a point in time now where I would never have guessed I would be in the health IT industry. I can uh, take you a little bit through how I got here, if that's um, something of interest. Yeah, of course. I would love to hear it. <laughs> so I did, mostly did nursing for quite some time and then I moved into hospital management. I worked in clinical governance practice and setting up structures and organisation in organisations, large organisations, you know, 1,400 beds, 11,000 staff in Melbourne. And that was quite successful. It was the beginning of the kind of the clinical governance era, patient safety at the forefront and, and so forth. I then met my now husband and uh, this was 20 years ago and we got married and we sold everything up, the house, the cars, everything except one vehicle. And uh, we left Australia and travelled around for two years. During that time, I, I managed to, you know, work for hospitals in a consulting role here and there. And my husband drove road trains. So um, I feel like that's a very Australian story. Like a lot of Australians <laughs> do that, right? They definitely do. Maybe not so much the age we were, but they are doing it more now. A lot of people tended to do it in their retirement, but it is definitely... And since COVID as well, people are travelling a lot more in Australia. So it's great that people are getting out and seeing this fantastic country that we have. It's very big. I mean, it takes some time to get through. But, yeah, a lot of people are and they take their families and they, um, you know, educate them along the way. So it's a, it's a fantastic way to experience our culture because you certainly, it's, it's very different in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, as it is in Alice Springs or out even more remote like in the Kimberleys, which is the north of Western Australia. Um, yeah. So, yes, so you travelled around Australia, yeah? yeah? Yeah. For those two years. Okay. And I like to say we're still on our honeymoon because we never went back to Melbourne. We, um, <laughs> <laughs> we stopped in um, North Australia and I've been in, working in North Australia ever since in my sort of career aspect of that. I went into, um, I became a clinical and strategic planner for health services and that was working in the far north region of Queensland and ultimately the Territory as well. I think I, I helped plan and design I think the total is five hospitals and then I was in the uh, the full design and build for one of them. So that was a big chunk of my career was hospital planning and, and uh, master planning. But particularly the core part of that was the clinical services planning and trying to use information available in our health information systems to do the best job of predicting what kind of services a hospital will need to provide and particularly those hospitals in more regional areas so not the main sort of capital cities. So I worked, as I say, in the northern part of Australia. A couple of um, interesting things about Australia is the Australian outback takes up three quarters of almost of the Australian continent and it only has 800,000 people with a population density of less than 0.1 person per square kilometre. Wow. So it gives you a context. And I think globally the average is 50 people per square kilometre. So it gives you just a difference. So providing healthcare services in remote or very remote and rural Australia is really challenging. And that's where I've probably spent the last, you know, almost 20 years of my time. So... When we got to the Northern Territory, I, I was working for the Northern Territory Government and that's where I 
was able to spend put some of my skills into building a new hospital and coordinating that. But I also had a broad experience up here in um, policy development and implementation of policy and providing government advisory services. I worked to minister in cabinet level up here. Now, the jurisdiction of the NT is quite small, so it sounds very impressive, but because it's small, you get this exposure to things that you would never normally get in a larger jurisdiction. So I've really, I've really become a generalist, and I used to think that was a bad thing, but I, I really believe that it's been one of the strengths of my career is having so many robust, good experiences in different areas of healthcare and including, I continued my clinical practice all the way through my career up until about five years ago when I had to stop. Um, I had some back problems, so I had to stop clinically nursing. But it is one of the things I'm most proud of is this generalist sort of management and um, strategic planning policy career. And now, you know, I'm I'm running a implementation service for the implementation of electronic medical records for intersystems. One thing that it reminds me of, of what you're saying, is like if somebody lives in a big city, they may feel like a small fish in a big pond. Whereas if you are in a rural area, you get the opportunity to be like big fish, little pond, which gives you way more access to stuff. So I imagine in that sense, you must have seen and experienced so much that you might not otherwise have an opportunity to do so had you stayed in Melbourne. Yeah, absolutely. And and the leaving Melbourne wasn't a planned career sort of strategy. It was just, you know, we loved being in the outback Australia and, and um, didn't want to sort of head back to the mainstream city. But that's absolutely what happened for me is I got all of these experiences, covered a whole breadth of areas that I would never have been able to have the opportunity to do. And, you know, I didn't start my career out with a plan and a goal to be you know, run my own business to be the CEO of that or the whatever of here. I just pursued the opportunities as they came. Uh, as you say, moving into that sort of smaller part of Australia, which still requires the same level of healthcare, and the challenges are enormous, particularly we have an Indigenous population here, which unfortunately, you know, are the health there are health outcome differences between the non-Indigenous population and our Indigenous population. And that has become very important for me in what I do. And it's something that I can align very much to the vision of, of the company I work with at the moment in the provision of an electronic medical record. Because when I was in these rural areas and, and planning for services and hospitals, how do you how do you ensure that the service that you're planning for, you're providing enough or you've got the right you know, breadth that you're making it easy for patients to get treatment, for clinicians to conduct their care. The information that was available to us to do that planning was okay, but it would be inevitably so much more robust if we had an integrated health system like we are putting in the NT up here with, um, and that's what, what happened to my transition into health IT is in the jurisdiction of the Northern Territory. So it's it's got boundaries and it's only a small one. It's got a quarter of a million people most at, at most, at best. But it is putting in a single electronic medical record to go from acute through to community and remote, very remote primary care community clinics as well as primary care. And that ability to have information in one source for patients will do a couple of things aside from support patient care 
and more efficiently and more effectively in early diagnosis and management, more smooth management, and, and it will save resources. We do we wouldn't spend as much needing to fly people in and out of major centres. But additionally, you know, it will help to plan for service delivery to really address the gap between the health outcomes of the non-Indigenous population and the Indigenous population and those who do live more remotely generally who don't have the same access to services because of their remote location. So is that something that you can share some insight on as far as what is it that you've been able to find out that these, you know, Indigenous populations, what's the health care that they actually need? Are there trends that are starting to show up more that you have access to that you can see because of the implementation of the EHR and having a, being able to slice and dice the data slightly differently? So we're not quite there yet. We're still implementing up here. So I was brought in to run the program up here and that extended to then running the whole of the implementation for Australia and New Zealand. But we are have passed the first stage of implementation up here. It's, it's a it's a you know years long worth project, but we have got fully um, migrated available data to read only for clinicians. And the ones who are responding really enthusiastically to that are the clinicians who are in the remote settings, who are in the primary care, rural and remote settings. They can see the patient's pathology results, x-rays, clinical notes from their stay in hospital. They can know that they've been in hospital because language is also a factor here. We have 180 different Indigenous languages in this country. And so, you know, English is not the first language from most of our Indigenous population. So often the care providers in our remote communities and primary care will not have the understanding that one of their patients would have been in hospital. So now they can see that and they can do uh, proactive, if you like, care, go out, find the person, bring them in, do the follow-up care that they need, undertake and, and ensure that they don't particularly have a, a reoccurrence and bounce back to hospital and that and that, that care can really be... Um, coordinated amongst team members that live in both the acute and, and urban setting in the, and in the remote setting. So that enthusiasm from the remote primary care clinicians is great. It's a great indicator of what is going to be when they're actually live using the system. And it's a staged implementation there we are doing the patient administration work first and then we're moving into the full clinical integration, so uh, implementation. So that is a couple of years away, but certainly the signs from the read-only migrated data from four or five separate systems wow. is really exciting for these guys. So and definitely going to impact health outcomes. So I have questions and really it's almost on behalf of our listeners because understanding where exactly you live, the Northern Territory of Australia, when we're talking about remote, like we've got country and rural living here, but I think that it is the size of Australia is essentially the same size as the United States, but the population is around the same as like Los Angeles for the yeah. whole country. And yeah, so yeah. when somebody talks about needing to get care, like an access to care, like how many hours of a drive could it be to get to where they need to go to Okay, so I'm in Darwin, so the, the capital of the Northern Territory, if you like. It's a really big country town. <laughs> but um, if I was to go to one of the major remote communities by road, 
which is in Arnhem Land, which is the top part of the Northern Territory where Darwin is next to, it would take me almost two days by road to drive there. Wow. So it's not just the distance on the on the, the road at the kilometres, it's the remoteness of the track and the fact that there's not bitumen to every remote community in in uh, well, in Australia, in the NT, it's, it's challenging access. And then you get to the time of year where we have cyclones, so our wet season, and most of the communities in the top part of Australia will be cut off from the main cities because it's impassable. The roads are too wet. They're underwater. There's just a massive of water through the tropical wet. So it's only accessible by plane or helicopter at best for and some communities, not all. So do they have, do each of these remote communities have you know, like a medical practice that they can go to? Or like if somebody breaks their leg during cyclone season? Yeah. So no, they don't. There are major sort of communities that have a health centre. They have kind of an emergency response team from there that go out to other communities. Uh-huh. Otherwise, it is we have a service called Care Flight, and that brings people in who need care. Okay. So, communications is obviously the other thing, not always available. So, yeah, it's it's what do you call I, it? Uh, it's like um, cowboy country, you know, of old. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, stuff. I can only imagine the challenges that you have to face, not only in just like proximity and you know getting to the people of are people letting you know that there even is a problem but I imagine they don't necessarily have cell service or good internet access out there no that's Wait. correct no <laughs> yeah the government has been very good in getting some mobile phone coverage but of course in big weather conditions you know that can be lost wow. so yeah there's, there's multiple challenges and a, and a lot of community people will come into the major centres through the wet season, they will not stay out in the community. And that's particularly true. So we do renal dialysis out in communities. We have self, self-managed self dialysis where we'll have a, a full dialysis chair and unit and we train our clients up to, to use those. Those particular patients will generally be coming into Darwin or or another, you know, Alice Springs, if they, if they are linked to the to the desert country for the wet season. They won't stay out in their community and that's a safe way to go, but it's it's critical yeah. for those with illnesses that do need a regular and obviously dialysis is fundamental for life for those people. So, but the fact that we have, you know, remote dialysis that people do themselves is extraordinary. I'm guessing, but fill in any gaps for me, I'm guessing that it must be a really like a very purpose-driven, it must feel good what you're doing, knowing that you are delivering and bringing care to folks that otherwise wouldn't have access to it. I imagine that it's a big job and there's a lot that you're doing, but I I would imagine you also sleep well at night feeling good about what you do. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely do. Look, I went into nursing just passionate about people and about... um, doing some good, I suppose. Um, I'm, I'm one of the altruistic types. Um, if you'd asked me would ever have seen myself in health IT, I would have absolutely said, no, gosh, that sounds dreadfully boring. I would never do that. And it is the most amazing experience of my career because what we are doing is going to enable 
you know, the information gap to close to support this people and all people. But, you know, this remote group of people is so important with their challenging health outcome statistics. You know, that drives me every day and I am super proud of being part of that. And, you know, I work for a company who the product that we have is being designed and developed to do that. And it's not focused on, you know, X type of customer or Y, but its whole goal is to enable healthy data to be available to clinicians for better decision-making, more efficient care, to enable smart, intuitive and, and innovative care, which we need to be able to do in a country like Australia, and particularly in the remote and rural, to really make a leap forward in providing care for our, you know, remote populations. Yeah. I, you know, I've, it's only really been through this season of episodes that I have gotten to know InterSystems a little bit better. I mean, I've known the name for a really long time, but haven't always been as clear on all of the services and products that you guys have within your suite. And as I've gotten to know a lot of the women in your organization, like it's such a good Come like you're doing so much good. It seems like you're in you're intertwined into a lot of other big systems, but you're essentially doing a lot of like the backbone of making sure that people have what they need, information, data, being able to slice and dice it for population yeah. health, et cetera, but like all over the world, not just in the US, all over the world. No, no, we are absolutely global, <laughs> Europe, England, Middle East, obviously Asia, not just Australia, New Zealand, but Thailand, China. Yeah. You know, we, and obviously um, with the US as well. So yeah, it's a great company to be a part of. I I have found, if you like, I've been in the workplace for a few years now and the, the company and the people in the company, it's kind of like my work, my family that I've found. So many, yes, bright people, intelligent people, motivated people, but people committed to what we've just been talking about, you know, making the health, you know, working towards health outcomes, improving health outcomes, providing the tools to do that to for clinicians to be able to provide good care with improved information, clean data, you know, and um, having meaningful, you know, a comprehensive data set rather than having to go to all these different sources and to be able to connect in with other clinicians and their patients in, you know, a truly smooth and integrated ways is just extraordinary. So we've all got this goal and our founder and owner, Terry Reagan, you know, his focus for us is on having happy, successful clients yeah so part of that is for health obviously the focus for clinicians on their patients and so it's a really beautiful transition from my point of view to make from like clinical nursing and being a health management professional into this industry of um, health information technology and then I've, I've got lots of colleagues who have exactly the same there's lots of connect clinicians in intersystems as well we mm-hmm. have made the decision to to recruit specialists to ensure that we understand what the pain points are for our customers and we work with them to solve that. And I imagine language, like what you were bringing up earlier, if there's 180 Indigenous languages just in Australia alone, do any of the folks, they must have interpreters. How does that work? Um, So in Australia, English, you know, that unfortunately our Indigenous languages, there are so many 
we there is a pidgin English, I suppose. I don't speak it, but in remote areas, you do have Indigenous health workers and translators who work with particular communities. So as we get to our deployment and rollout, we will be working with our customer with people who work with the Indigenous health workers to translate and communicate. And we do have to, they also have jobs in our clinics in remote areas. They, you know, they're a critical part of the workforce in remote Australia. And so enabling them to use the system without necessarily having the read-write university-level English that most of us have is really going to be a, a challenge. But um, it's, you know, we do a lot by picture and diagram and that works well and, and colours and, and so forth. That's so we, we are going to take that and have to take that into account as part of the training of these people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, so can I ask you a couple personal questions? Oops. Yeah. Okay. I just want to know, I mean, clearly your job is very important and, you know, you're doing amazing work in the world, but what do you do when you're not at work? Like, how do you maintain your balance? Like, what do you do in Darwin? Like, what is there to do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a bit like, you know, being on permanent holiday when you leave work and it's sunny and beautiful and tropical and you can go and sit and watch the sun go down on a Beach, you can't swim, mind you. The crocodiles aren't, aren't so okay. happy if you swim, or, or you won't be so happy if you swim. But you know, you, there is a. It's very social. It's it is a country town community, very strong community. So, really, there's a lot of um, socialising over food. And for us, my my husband and I, we love getting out into the bush and doing some camping. Okay. And essentially, you've just got to drive down the road here in Darwin and you're in the middle of nowhere almost. Cell phone connectivity drops out really quickly. Yeah, you, you're basically in the middle of nowhere and we, we do enjoy that. Otherwise, for me, you know, and it's one of the things that I've learned through my time, uh, my career is give yourself some self-care. It's really important. Ensure you invest in yourself with time, with family, friends. So for us, family's not up here and friends are spread around Australia. So we will often sort of nick off for a weekend and go and visit or have people come up here and visit. People do like to come up and visit up here because it is tropical. So at this time of year, normally, obviously COVID has changed a little bit of that. We will always have visitors in and out of our house for about sort of five months. So, um, yeah, it's and there's, it's a very outdoors, you know, lots of, there's only a couple of times in the year, a couple of months where you really can't do too much outdoors and it's too hot anyway. So, you know, we spend a lot of time exercising outdoors, walking, riding. It's a very easy place to live. It's uh, pretty stress-free too. Well, but I so do you, a lot with work. So. You do have to avoid crocodiles. And you I, do? <laughs> You do? Are there any other like deadly animals that are in your area that you, you need to make sure that you can stay away from? A lot of people get <laughs> worried with Australia that it's got like the most deadly creatures in the world in one place, I sort of thing, or certainly reptiles. So snakes, they're snakes, yeah. Okay. But they kind of will avoid you if you avoid them and you just make a lot of noise and, you know, I suppose you get used to the fact that they're around you and you just are sensible, I suppose, with the crocodile side of things. We've been in places where we've seen people, you know, cooking food and cleaning food on the beach where there's crocodiles in the 
you know, water and you just don't do stuff like that because the crocodile will come on to a near your camp. So, you know, there's some fundamental yeah. rules you just apply. But And that goes for snakes as well. Do you know, okay, so I've heard that if a crocodile is chasing you, you should run zigzag because they can't turn their bodies like that. Has that, have you ever heard that? <laughs> no, I, I don't ever want to find myself in a position where a crocodile's chasing me. So I probably go to the avoidance of the crocodile chasing me. But yeah. they're fascinating creatures and um, they're very strong. <laughs> so you just don't want to get into a position where you anywhere yeah. near one in the wild. I don't even mess with it. <laughs> no, no. My next question for you is around advice, like career advice, basically. You've been in this industry, you know, healthcare specifically for at least 20 years. Are there any challenges that you have over, like that you've faced and I'm assuming overcome that maybe you could help somebody else that might be entering their career? Is there any, like, I, I like to think of like, how can we make it easier for the, the ladies or women or, or just young people coming in after us? Do you have any advice for, for people entering the health IT or even just as a woman, et cetera. I love, yeah, I love. sure. I do, I think. I suppose you hope you've learned something after a few years. I think importantly for people starting out their career, where you begin in your career does not define where you end up. You will experience things in jobs, good and bad. You may make decisions that you later on wish you hadn't. So there might, you know, might be times where you have that, but every experience, what it gives you is what you, you know, you do like about something, a job, um, about your industry, about your career, and what you don't want to do. So I have found that my movement through my career is a lot more about refining the things and finding out the things I actually don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And then going through doors, as I say, as they, you know, taking opportunities that seem seem sensible, but not, you know, worrying too much about one, one, I've had one particular significant experience and I felt like that it had, you know, it would have a major impact on my career and I, I would have to do something else and, and so forth. But I had a, a mentor and that's certainly one thing I think for women uh, in work, having a female mentor in the close to the industry and, and the business that you're in is really important. But she looked at me and she said, you're not special. And I thought, what? I, of course I am. But what she meant was we all go through these things. We all have challenging times and we get over them and people forget. And you continue to grow and learn and mature in yourself, in your profession, and you end up working in things that you like, that you're good at, that you enjoy, and that you know you're contributing to. So I think the key is it doesn't matter where you start, it doesn't define where you end up. And when those challenging times do come, they are forgotten in time and you learn from them. So I think the key thing is is just to learn from everything we do, both yeah. the great and the so great. It's, um, I'm really happy to hear you say that because I've been thinking about something a lot lately of just like how do you address when you have problems, right? We all face challenges. There's also there's always things that show up in your life that make it things more difficult. And you're like, I am having to stretch or grow or be uncomfortable or I just really am just unhappy. I don't particularly like this situation. And instead of asking myself, you know, or feeling sorry for myself, I have started asking myself, like, what is the lesson that I need to learn here? 
and turning it into a learning opportunity. So as best that I can, so that I, I can and the learning opportunity, myself forward. Yeah. yeah. The learning opportunity might be, I don't want to do that again. That's not something that inspires me, interests me, you know, it's, and so, you know, it just refines what you're next going to do. And I think that's, so, you know, the learning opportunities are, yes, about finding out about ourselves and learning about ourselves, but also defining what we like to do and want to do and will and are good at as well. But I, I do think it is good to push yourself. And sometimes the pushing yourself, you know, you can end up in a situation that you are uncomfortable in. And there's some tools, I think, that one of the main ones I've mentioned is the mentor. I think putting in place and I've gone for more informal mentors not the structured sort of formal mentoring programs it suits me that way I have been able to find and particularly women I recommend women for women most of the time not all of the time but for, for me the women mentors that I've had and I, I've got sort of three that I can really attribute to some great conversations and learning and you know because you can talk through what you're going through you can bounce things off you can check in and just take some of the emotion out and I think that's a real key if you can take some of the emotion out you can think a little clearly more clearly and sometimes the other aspect is go back to the self-care you know we don't make good decisions when we are stressed you know our decision making becomes less confident, less robust. And if you, most of our work these days is stressful in some regard, the pace is much higher, the the demand is is sort of more and, you know, with COVID, not just COVID, but the the mobile phones, sort of just the age of mobile phones. I remember I was young and old enough, I'm old enough to remember when there wasn't mobile phones. I'm old enough to remember when I got my first mobile phone, which was the size of a brick. And I got given it by my husband when I was um, nursing to, and the the most useful thing it it was for me when I was going to my car in the middle of the, after the night evening shift or after the night shift in the morning was to hold it in my hand. I figured I could clock somewhere over the head with it. I'm not sure I could have made a call that quickly. (laughs) Self-defence. Correct. But, you know, there, there is, there hardly is a line between work and home now or personal life and it's been compounded with COVID for a lot of us working from home so it makes it even more important to make sure you've got a balance between your work and your personal life and that you do invest in yourself to ensure that you know the ability to make decisions with work and, for, and to care for yourself uh, you know is as strong as it can be and that, so, you know that's well, really cool. To that end, do you, is there anything that you do? Because we're not always in a position to go on holiday or be gone for the weekend. Is there any practice that you have that's daily or almost daily that helps you maintain your balance? Yeah, look, there's two things for me. I'm a reader. I like to read, but I read, I don't read (laughs) for my relaxation. I read novels. I read, you know, crime novels, things that I can just go into another world. And the other thing I do do is a meditation and yes, morning or night, and you can do snippets of meditation during the day uh, to learn to do sort of a really good, easy guided meditation has been one of the gifts. Me that too. I feel really aligned with you on that. I have really honed in my daily meditation practice and it's a game changer. Yes. And you can do it just a quick shutdown at work too, a five minute, a sit down, center yourself have a, a five-minute, you know, relaxation and 
you know, rejuvenate yourself really quickly. It's quite phenomenal what it can do. So there are things that you don't need to be out and about to do them. But, yes, I mean, reading other for other people, it might just be watching something on Netflix or so forth. But it's really, it's just getting out into, out of your work headspace, out of your active brain, just working through things, um, the rumination that goes on for mm-hmm. all of us, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. It's just giving your brain a break from that. And I think that's critical. And obviously there are other things when we're allowed out and about that do that, like time with friends, time with of family, course. all of those things that we may not be able to do in the same way as we, we, we did whilst we are in COVID. I was just sharing with somebody because they were asking about the trip and we've been on the road and how was it, et cetera. And, and I keep pointing to my meditation practice as something that has come in really handy to help regulate my emotions in times of stress or anxiety, like even driving within the wind on a highway with a trailer whipping back and forth behind me, I think is something that might make my stomach, you know, come all the way up to my throat and scare the scare the daylights out of me. But with my meditation practice, I've been I ha, I noticed it helped that I could just stay calm. That I'm still going through it, but it at least it helped me to stay kind of centered while that was happening and then like you just get through it anyway I mean the simplest technique is breathing Mm -hmm. is if you're in a stressful situation you're feeling you know that sick feeling those butterflies that nervousness aspect you you know your fight or flight response is coming into play just taking a moment to breathe in and out and concentrate on the breath purely and that doesn't need to take more than a few breaths and you can bring your response right down. And that can be really important, you know, giving a presentation, having an important meeting at work with a group of people, you know, those sorts of things do cause stress and anxiety in certain times. And certainly as you're going through your career and learning how to engage in those times and how to um, be the best, you know, that that ability to just stop and breathe, nobody notices you're not obviously, you know, going into some kind of trance. You're just breathing. And so it's a really neat little trick. Seems very simple. Just don't forget to breathe. That's all. <laughs> well, concentrate on your breathing. But, yes, don't forget to breathe ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nicole, thank you for, so much for taking the time to talk with me today. If somebody wanted to find you or connect with you online, what would the best way for them? I'm on LinkedIn. Um Easy to Nicole Cameron and uh, Intersystems is the the best way to find me. And I've been really great, happy to reach out to anyone who wanted to catch up. No problem. I, I enjoy my global colleagues that I've and my network that I've been developing whilst I've been in Intersystems. And to expand that would be wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk with me today. Right. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Joy. See you. Mm-hmm. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Hit like a girl podcast is a proud member of the health podcast network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission driven which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, 
They've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com.